Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron. I get the privilege each and every week to serve here as the lead pastor and the church planter. If you're a guest here, I want to say thank you so much for gathering with us today um, and spending your Sunday morning with us. Uh, we're in a four weeks, uh, six week series. This is week four, as we've been walking through the parables of Jesus and its teachings that Jesus gives us, so that way we can learn the mysteries of the kingdom of God and how we are to live. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us when he tells us the parables. And so over the course of this series, we've looked at the first parables that Jesus tells. We've also looked at the most famous parables. And today we're going to be looking at one of the final parables of Jesus's life. And so as Jesus's earthly life and ministry continues and progresses, at the end of his life, with the cross before him, as he's heading into Jerusalem, the parables um, get increasingly darker, and he starts telling them with more frequency. As he's going to the cross, where ultimately he's going to die for all of our sins. And so in this series, we're leading into Easter, which is in three weeks, and we're going to look at the final parables that Jesus tells us. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. That's where we're going to be working at today as we look at Luke 18, 1 through 8. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that you sent him to to make a way possible for our lives. Lord, I pray that if any of my brothers and sisters in this room are discouraged, I pray that this word today will be of encouragement to them, that just as the disciples were worried about what comes next, so often in our lives, we worry about the same thing. I pray that your word would comfort us and it would guide us. I pray that your spirit would lead us and direct us. And I pray that as a church, we will walk together with one another through whatever happens in our lives. And we praise you and we pray to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So um, several years ago, I had, the, I had the opportunity to go to a pastor's conference. Now, I, I don't get to go to pastor's conferences um, very often because, one, pastor's conferences are expensive, and church planters tend to be broke. That's just how it works. And so uh, I was gifted the opportunity to go to this pastor's conference. Somebody bought me a ticket, and I went, and it was amazing. Because what I noticed there in that, in that giant room with 5,000 other pastors and church leaders, what I realized is I'm not the only one who has no clue what I'm doing. There are thousands of other pastors that are just clueless like me. And so I'm like, these are my people, right? There was a lot of encouragement. There was a lot of solidarity just being able to spend the week with all of these other men and women. And there was one speaker particularly that stood out to my mind. I still remember him to this day. And this guy, his name was Bob Goff. Now, I don't know if you know who Bob Goff is, um, but he wrote a book called Love Does. Bob was full of energy, full of excitement and encouragement. And Bob's story was telling us everything that had happened in his life to be able to share with us that day. And it was all the things that God has done and all the things that he has overcome in his life to bring him to this very moment. Now, Bob's not a pastor. Bob's not a church leader. He's not in any sort of vocational ministry. But Bob loves Jesus. Bob loves the church. And Bob loves to serve pastors. And so as Bob was telling the story, what I found interesting was that Bob's not very gifted. Bob wasn't very talented, nor was he super intelligent or smart, um, but Bob was persistent. And so Bob said, I'm going to put this persistence to good use, and I'm going to pursue justice, so I want to become a lawyer. 
So Bob wanted to become a lawyer. The only problem is that Bob didn't pass his entrance exams. Bob didn't get into college. So as his friends were all getting their acceptance letters to their universities of their choice, Bob got nothing. And so Bob said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fly out to California, and I'm going to get a meeting with the dean, and I'm going to persuade him to let me in to university. So that's exactly what he did. So he flew out to California. He got the meeting with the dean and said, Dean, okay, listen, I know I didn't pass my entrance exams. I know, I know that I'll make a great lawyer. I promise I'll work hard. The only thing you have to say is, Bob, go buy your books, and I'm in. You have the power to let me in. That's all you have to do is say, Bob, go buy your books. And guess what the dean said? No. And so Bob's like, ugh, okay. So what do I do? Do I give up and go home? Or do I stay and do I persist? Bob chose to persist. So Bob sat outside the dean's office every day for weeks leading up to school. And he would just yell out, go buy your books. And the dean would say, no. And this went on. And every time the dean would show up, there's Bob. Hey, go buy your books. Dean says, no. When the dean would go to lunch, guess who's there? Bob, go buy your books. Dean says, no. Walking in the parking lot, going out after work, there's Bob. And he's just saying, go buy your books. And the dean keeps telling him no. And this goes on. And then the first day of college begins, and Bob's still not in. And classes come and go, and it's five days, and Bob wants to give up. Bob wants to go home. Maybe he thinks, this is a fool's errand. I should just give up. And as he's sitting there, the dean opens up the door, walks over to Bob, and leans over and says, Bob, go buy your books. And Bob did. Bob went and bought his books, and he went to law school. And then Bob actually became a pretty good lawyer, so much so that today he's a professor at Pepperdine Law University. And more than that, Bob Goff is also a U.S. diplomat to Uganda where he works with former child soldiers, children who have been sold into sex slavery and building orphanages. So Bob's a pretty big deal. Bob loves Jesus, Bob loves the church, and Bob is persistent. And the moral of this story is that persistence pays off. And so today Jesus is going to tell us a parable about a woman who is a lot like Bob. We're going to look at the parable of the persistent widow and the crooked judge. So I got a little equation for us that I want us to work through, and it's this, okay? It's persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. Okay, that's what we're going to be working at. I want you to know that persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. You taking notes? You got that? Write it down. Persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. Okay, before we get started, I want you to know there is a bad sort of persistence. Okay, ladies, right? Guy keeps calling, keeps asking you out, you keep saying no, right? That's bad persistence. If he keeps trying to slide in your DMs and likes pictures from two years ago on your Instagram, that's not persistence. That's a stalker. Get a restraining order, okay? So guys, that's not how you do it, all right? And so there is a type of persistence that is bad, okay? Sometimes it's pushy, sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's manipulative. That is an unholy persistence. That's not what we're talking about. But there is a type of persistence that is holy. There is a type of persistence that is bold. There is a type of persistence that God wants for us in our life. And so this is going to be good for you because a lot of you are not very persistent. Okay, so this is going to be good for you to learn. A lot of you, you give up way too easily. You're not very persistent in your life. That, that we feel discouraged. It might be because you're, you're, you're insecure and you don't really know what to do. Maybe it's just because you're an introvert and you hate conflict, okay? But, but we need to learn that we need to persist in certain areas of our life. And so this is going to be good for you. And so in our marriage, that's something that you must persist in, right? Because your marriage matters. 
You need to persist with your children, even through the teenage years, because that matters. And so for your singles, you need to persist in your holiness, because what you do today determines the way you'll live forever. If it's at work or in college, we must persist in our careers and our ambitions. We must persist in our arts and music to learn your craft and your trade. You can't give up. You must persist. Now, most of us, we want to give up all the time. Say, this is complicated. This is difficult. This is challenging. I'm just going to give up, give in, and walk away. And Jesus is telling us today that there is a persistence that we must learn. We must hold on to. And this is the persistence that he's teaching us. And so, If you find yourself ever in the position that you want to quit, if you find yourself in the position that you want to give up and go home and walk away, you're in a great position. That's the same place that the disciples felt in their life. They even got to that place where they say, Jesus, what's happening? Jesus, what's going to come next? I don't understand. If you are ever in that place, don't worry, you're in good company because the disciples felt the same way. And that's the reason that Jesus is telling them this parable. He wants them to know that persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. Here's what Jesus says in verse 1. And he, being Jesus, tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose hearts. Okay? So why would Jesus tell the disciples to always pray and not lose heart? Well, the answer is they were discouraged. They were very discouraged because just before Jesus tells them this story, he foretells of his death for the very first time. For the first time, he lets them know the true meaning that Jesus came on this earth, that he was going to bring the kingdom of God, that he was going to live, that he was going to die. And the disciples and the crowd and all the people around became very upset. Now, the crowd and the religious leaders, they were upset, not because they loved Jesus, but because they were indignant towards him. They thought, Jesus, you are crazy. Who do you think you are, God? Exactly. And they would say, Jesus, do you think you're the Messiah? Jesus, you think you're the Son of God? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And so they got very angry towards Jesus. And they would say, Jesus, where is this kingdom of which you speak? You keep talking about the kingdom, but I don't see the kingdom. We don't, we don't see it. You're not a king. There's no rulers. You have no government power. There's not a lot of people that are coming to fight on your behalf. Jesus, where is this kingdom in which you speak? Because see, even up until this very point, the crowd, the religious leaders, the disciples, they all thought that the kingdom that God or Jesus spoke of was an earthly kingdom. They thought that the kingdom of God was going to be political or was going to be authoritative and that he was going to overthrow Rome and the Jewish system. But Jesus tells them the kingdom of God is not something you touch, not something you see, not something you feel. The kingdom of God is something you live. And what he teaches us is that on the first coming of Jesus Christ, where he entered in this world fully God, fully man, the kingdom of God was revealed for the first time. So the kingdom of God is already here through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is the reason that Jesus had authority in his teachings. This is the reason that as, as Jesus performed miracles, while he raised the dead to life, while he healed the blind and healed the deaf, this is the reason that even, even nature obeyed him. So he, he calmed the waves and the sea, and he ultimately overcame death and the hell and the grave. Because he had authority in his life. And so for the first time, the kingdom of God is already. But it's not yet in its fullness. 
that one day Jesus will return and he will bring heaven to earth and will experience the kingdom of God in its fullness. So get this, the kingdom of God is already, but it's also not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not here. The kingdom of God has come and it's also coming. And so for you and I, this means that we live in the middle. As we've experienced Jesus in our life, one day we'll experience him in fullness in the next. We live in the middle. So in the middle, there's pain. In the middle, there's suffering. There is, there's troubles. There's hardships. There's uncertainties. There's also a lot of joy, and there's a lot of triumph, but there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of tragedy. You ever experienced this in your life? This is why? Because we live in the middle. So while Jesus reigns, we still experience sin and temptation. But Jesus is wanting us to know that no matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, he is there for us and we can experience joy and fulfillment in this life with hope for the next. And so Jesus is reminding us in our lives, no matter what you're up against, no matter what situation you are going through, to persist in prayer and perseverance. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples through this story. Now think about it. Imagine if you're the disciple on this day, that you hear that Jesus is leaving. What are you going to think? What do you think? What do you mean you're leaving? What do you mean you're going to, to, to die? You can't die. Right? We're here for a mission. Why are you going to leave us? Could you imagine what it would be like that day? What do you mean you're leaving? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Right, we've given up everything to follow you. We've quit our jobs, so we have no money. We've, we've moved our family across the country. How do we go back home? And we live in the middle of a day that people hate us, and that the government opposes us, that the religious systems of the world oppress us. What hope do we have if you leave? We're going to be alone. The days are dark, the days are long, and we have no hope. Could you imagine being in that place? Maybe some of you are in that place right now. To where you feel, what comes next? I'm uncertain. Jesus, are you leaving me? Are you abandoning me? What am I going to do? And so Jesus tells them this story because that's their heart. And Jesus wants them to move them to a position of response by his love, by his grace, and by his provision. And so he tells them this story. And here's what he says. This is what he says in verse 2. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Okay, so here we got a story with two people. Now, these two people are the furthest extreme on social status. Okay, so we got a woman who's a widow, and we got a man who's a judge. Right Now, as, as a woman, she would get no respect in that day. But as a man, the judge would get a lot of respect. As a widow, she'd be poor and penniless. As a judge, he would be rich and prestigious. As, as a widow, she's powerless. As a judge, he is powerful. I want you to imagine two people, the complete opposites, polar opposites of social status in that culture and day. And Jesus presents them to us as an example of our lives. Okay, so first we have the widow. 
Okay, let's consider the widow. Now, we don't know much about the widow because that's not necessarily the purpose of the story. But here's what we can gather from her is that she has been sinned against in some way. Okay, there's something, there is someone who is opposing her. She is sinned against. And we can ascertain this because it says she has an adversary. That's someone who is seeking to do evil, to do harm, to do injustice, or to do violence towards her. And we don't know who it is or or what it is. It could be a, a relative of her dead husband who won't give her her inheritance. It could be that her court case has been tied up in litigation for years. It could be that somebody has abused her or beaten her or robbed her, which is very familiar for a woman in that day, especially a widow. We don't know what it is, but we do know this. She's been sinned against, and she is seeking justice. Now, in those days, there's three ways in which you could seek justice. The first way you could do it is that you could bribe the judge. You could bribe him. You could pay him off. But this woman is a widow, so she's penniless. She can't can't bribe the judge because she's poor. The second way you could do it is you could threaten the judge. But she's an old woman and a widow. She can't threaten the judge. So the last thing that you would do is you had to persist. You had to keep pushing. You had to keep persisting day in, day out, on and on and on until eventually your case was heard. And that's what the woman does. She chooses to persist. Okay, so next let's look at the judge. Is this a good judge or a bad judge? He's a bad judge. Is he righteous or is he unrighteous? He's unrighteous. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says he neither fears God nor respects man. Now, if those are the two character qualities that you're known by, you're a bad dude, okay? He neither fears God. Okay, so there is no cause, there is no care, there is no concern in his life about the word of God, about the law of God, about the people of God. He just goes about his life doing what he wants, when he wants. He does his own thing. So he doesn't believe in life after death. He doesn't believe that there's a capital J judge who's going to judge him one day. He just goes around, just does whatever he wants with no fear of God. Okay? For him, he's his own God. That he sits on the throne of his own life, that his courtroom is his own kingdom, and he just sits in judgment against other people. He's his own God. He does what he wants, when he wants, with whomever he wants. I'll tell you this. Most people live like the judge. That we live our lives as if we're our own gods, with no thought about God's will or God's law or God's people. We just go around doing whatever we want, and we sit in judgment against other people. Most of us live our lives as if we're the judge. So he doesn't fear God, but he also has no respect of man. He doesn't care about people. So you would think that compassion would be a mark of a judge, right? If you're going to be pursuing justice and giving out verdicts for people who have been harmed, you would think that you would have just an ounce of compassion or care for someone, but not this guy. He doesn't care about people. So have you been, have you been sinned against? He doesn't care. Have you been wronged? He doesn't care. Have you been robbed? He doesn't care. He has no cause, no care, no concern. He has no compassion. He's calloused, he's crooked, and he's cruel. And this is, this is the judge, okay? And so in our lives, we find ourselves in, in various positions, whether we're the widow or the judge. And so what we gotta do back is, we gotta do first, we gotta step back and we gotta consider the parable. So the reason that Jesus tells the parables is they're not a cute story that he says to, to just illustrate a truth, right? That's, that's not the purpose of the parable, okay? It's a short story with a big idea. And what Jesus is trying to show us is our sin and our need for a savior, He's trying to move us to a position of response by revealing the kingdom of God to the world around. So we need to ask ourselves a series of questions. Who am I in this story? 
Who am I? That's the important question. So the first series of questions I'm going to ask you is, how are you like the judge? Okay, how are you like the judge? Now, immediately we're going to say, well, I'm not the judge, I'm the widow. That's what most people want to be. We want to be the widow. We don't want to be the judge. And the reason that we take the position that we're the widow is because we live in a culture where everyone loves to be the victim. We have a victim mentality in our culture to where it's everyone else's fault. They did this to me. They owe me. They wronged me. They sinned against me. Everything exists out there. There's nothing wrong in here. It's everyone else's problem but my own. That's how most of us live our lives. And when we take the victim mentality, what it causes us to do is it causes us to become hypocrites. That all we see is other people's sin and we fail to recognize our own. And so we go around thinking about all the wrong that others have done, but we excuse ourselves in our life. We want justice against others, but we want mercy for ourselves. And we play the victim. And so, yes, you are like the widow that you have been sinned against. But you're more like the judge than you'd imagine. So let's ask ourselves some introspective questions to see what places in my heart am I the judge. So the first question we'll ask is this. Do you fear God? Do you fear God? Do you worship him? And that word worship isn't just singing songs, right? That's not what that word means. That word worship means two things, glory and sacrifice, okay? Glory, do you you worship God as supreme ruler over your life? Does he have all authority? Does he have all, um, are you in submission under him? Is he supreme, prominent in your life? Okay, and if God is, then we make sacrifices because of his glory. Sacrifices with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, as we serve, as we give, as we spend time with those in the community and in the kingdom of God. So do you worship God? Is he at the center of your existence? And then do you have an outflow of your life to the world around you? Do you glory in God? Or do you glory in yourself? Do you live for his glory or do you live for your own glory? Do you live for his name or do you live for your own name? Do you live for his fame or do you live for your own fame? Do you glory in God? Now, maybe you don't believe in God. Or maybe, maybe you think that God owes you because of the things that have happened in your life or because of the things that you have accomplished in your life. So you think, I'm a good person. I, I, I've lived a moral, spiritual, religious life. God owes me. Do you fear God? Does he have any impact on the life in which you live? The second question we must ask ourselves is, do you care for others? Do you genuinely care for other people? Not just say, oh, hey, I love you, because everyone says I love you. The problem is nobody actually feels loved. Now, we go around, we say, oh, yeah, I love you, I love you, I care about you, and then everyone walks away feeling discouraged and depressed in their lives, and nobody actually feels loved. So do you love people? Not with just your words, but do you love them with your works? Do you love people? See, oftentimes we think sin is the things that we do. That sin is what we commit against other people. And while, yes, it is, there is more than just one sort of sin. There's the sins that we don't do. So you can sin as an act of commission, but you can also sin as an act of omission. And so if the Holy Spirit's leading you to serve and you don't, that's sin. If the Holy Spirit is moving you to act and you don't, that's sin. 
See, sin is not just what we do. Sin is also what we don't do. This judge, his sin was he didn't do anything. And most of us in our life, we're like, but I didn't do anything. Exactly. You didn't do anything. That's the sin. That God calls us to act and we don't. And that's separating ourselves from God and for other people. Okay, so you need to know that love is not just what you say. Ultimately, love is what you do. And so you say you love people. Okay, well, let's, let's prove it. Let's open up your calendar. Look at your day-to-day. Do you spend time with those who are hurting and need? Or do you spend all your time on yourself? Do you spend time in community and, and praying for others, reading your Bible? Or do you just spend time doing whatever you want? Let's look at your bank account. Do you spend more time, do you spend more money on yourself and your wants and your needs? Or do you spend money investing in the furthering of the kingdom of God in the world? See, if we ask ourselves very practical questions, we could say, yeah, I love, but we need to look down in the practical aspects of our lives and determine, do I really love? Because love is not what we say. Ultimately, love is what we do. The next question we must ask ourselves is, do you pursue justice? Do you pursue justice in your life? Do you ignore and neglect those who are in need, or do you provide and protect those in need? Do you pursue justice? Now, all of us in our lives, we are people who are in authority, okay? Um, There's some varying degree of our life that we're in authority, but we're also people who are under authority. We're under authority of God uh, at home or in work or at the church. In some varying degree of our lives, we're people who are both in authority and under authority. How do you use your authority in your life? God has called people around you. How do you use the authority that he has trusted you with? Do you provide and protect or do you ignore and neglect? Okay, so for those of us who, who, who are husbands, okay, when you come home, Right, do you kiss your wife? Do you get on the floor and play with your kiddos? Right, do you provide for your family? Or do you turn on the TV and check out for the evening? Right, for those of you who are moms, right, do you nourish and do you nurture your children? Do you honor and, and submit and respect your husband to see him grow in godliness? For those of us who are in college or work, do we create safe places around us so the people that are around us feel like their worth is valuable? Do we do that for them? In your church, do you serve so that more people can meet Jesus? Do we pursue justice? Do we seek the well-being and the flourishing of those who are around us? See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably a little bit more like the judge than we'd care to admit, right? And so the next question we must ask ourselves is, how are we like the widow? Okay, because we are sinners who have sinned against others, but, but you are someone who has been sinned against. So what are you walking through in your life right now to where you feel as if you're the widow? That there is hurt, there is, there, there is need of healing, you need hope, you feel like the widow. Like you're being sinned against, there's something in your life that you need to overcome. So my first question for you is, what are you believing for? What are you walking through in your life that you need God to move? You need God to respond. You have hurts in which you need healing. You have a loss of hope in which you need hope. What is it in your life that you are believing for, that God has to move on your behalf? Don't give up on that. Persist. Pray and persist and keep pushing forward to what you are believing in. The second question is this, what are you fighting for? There's some things that you must fight for. You need to fight, not everything. 
Some of you fight for things that don't even matter. And so we're fighting for stuff that doesn't matter and we're giving up on the things that matter most. And so what are you fighting for? Not everything's a fight, but there are some things you must fight for. So for your family, you need to fight. For your job, for your college, you need to fight. For your children, you need to fight. For your spouse, you need to fight. For your church, we must fight. For the city, we must fight. For the gospel, we must fight. For the furthering of the mission of God, we must fight. For the three billion people who are going to bed tonight without ever hearing the name of Jesus, we must fight. For the 30 million who are being sold into sex slavery, we must fight. The church needs to find its fight again and stop fighting against everybody else. There are some things that God has called us to fight for. What is it, the burden that God has given you? Don't give up on that burden. He's placed it there for a purpose. He wants you to fight and to persist. So the next question is this, who do you fear? Who do you fear in your life? See, for, for the widow, there was one person that stood between her and what she deserved, and that was the judge. But the widow, she didn't fear the judge. She was unafraid of the judge, because she feared the Lord. Because she knew that behind the judge, there was a capital J judge, and that's who she trusted in. Okay, who do you fear in your life? The book of Proverbs, it says, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, if you fear God, you won't be afraid of men. You either have the fear of God or you have the fear of man. If you know who God is, you'll know who you are and you'll know what to do. If you don't have God as the center of your existence, then somebody else will be. And you will always be living for the praise and the approval of others. And if you seek to please people, you will never please God. Who do you fear in your life? What are you afraid of? Don't be afraid of others. Don't seek the praise and the approval of others. Seek the one who gives you your identity, your value, and worth. Know who God is and fear God. So as Jesus is telling the the disciples this parable... He's doing so because he wants to encourage them because they're very fearful. Just like you and me, they're walking through things in their life in which they're afraid of others. Think about the surroundings that they have, a government that oppresses them, a religious nation that opposes them. Uncertainty is everywhere. They've lost hope. And so Jesus is telling the disciples this parable because he wants them to know that they can persist through prayer and will bring them perseverance in their life. And so this is, what, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. He says, and in verse one, he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose hearts. Okay, so why would Jesus tell his disciples to pray and not lose heart? Because he wants them to be encouraged. And God wants to encourage you. So there's a couple of ways we can read this parable. There's a correct way and there's an incorrect way. Right, the correct way would be to, to figure out the purpose in which Jesus tells the parable to begin with. Now, Jesus nearly always explains the parable. So we don't have to guess or speculate about what Jesus is saying because he explains it. But he explains it to his followers. See, the crowd, they didn't get the explanation because they were there for the wrong reasons. They had a closed mind, they had hard hearts, and they walked away confused. But for the committed who stuck with Jesus, who drew near to him, he explained the parable to them. And so Jesus gives us the explanation of this parable, and he says the purpose of the parable is that you are to pray and not lose heart. So that's the correct interpretation. The wrong interpretation to read this is that God is the judge, that God is crooked, that God is cruel, 
and he's the judge, and you have to beat him up, you have to, you have to bribe him, you have to beg him, and finally he'll give in and do whatever you want. That's not the purpose of the parable. Okay, the purpose of the parable is this, is that just as God, just as the judge is crooked and can do what's right for the woman, how much more can our good judge, who loves us, do what's right for us? That if this crooked judge can provide for this woman, how much more can our good judge provide for you? That's the purpose of the parable. That God is a good judge who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us, who protects us. And no matter what we're going through, no matter where we're at, he's there for us. And that we can go to him and he will be with us. And he listens to us and to our needs and to our petitions and to our prayers. He is always there for us. If this crooked judge can do what's right for the woman, how much more can our good judge do what's right for you? That's the purpose of the parable. And so ultimately, behind this parable, behind the, the, the lesson of persistence, it's really a lesson of prayer. That's really what it is. And ultimately, what, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God lives in the prayers of his people. He wants the disciples to know that even though he might be leaving, they can always come to him. And he'll always be there for him. Ultimately, it's a lesson of, of prayer. That's why he says to always pray and not lose heart. Okay, so so what, is, what, is, what is prayer? How is prayer going for you? What is prayer? Now, in the beginning of the year, we did a short mini-series over prayer. And so you can go back and you can listen to it um, and, and, and walk through that. And it's a great series. And it's a good resource for you. So I want to just briefly talk about what prayer is. Okay, here's what prayer is. Prayer is communicating with God. That's really all there is. Okay, it's not, it's not difficult. It's not mystical. It's actually very simple. It's just talking to God. So prayer is conversational. And, and, and so conversation is a demonstration of affection. So you love someone, you talk to them. And so, so God loves us, so he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his scriptures. He speaks to us through his spirit. And then we speak to God and we call that prayer. That's how prayer works. It's simple. And so oftentimes people try to make it very difficult. It's not. All it is is communicating and conversating with God. Now some of you, you have a hard time persisting because you have a hard time with prayer. You don't persist in things in your life because you don't pray. To you, you think that God is the crooked judge up in heaven, and then you have to like arm wrestle him just to get him to do anything that you want. You feel like God is distant and that God is far. You feel like he's an absentee landlord in your life, that he just created the heavens and the earth, and he just went on vacation, and you're left to figure it out on your own. That's not the God of the Bible. God's not far. God's close. God's not distant or resistant. God is near. God's not a force. He is a father. And that's why Jesus tells us that when we pray, we're to pray our father because he is a father. And some of you, you have a hard time with this because you had bad dads. And so your father was, was neglective or, or distant or, or far or he wasn't even there. I want you to know that God is a father to the fatherless. And we shouldn't project the failures of our earthly father onto our heavenly father. But we need to know that we can go to him wherever we're at and whatever we're going through, and he loves us because he's a good dad. And you can learn about prayer just by watching how a child interacts with that father. As a child interacts with their dad and as a dad interacts with the, the child, that's what prayer should look like. And so you can always go to him 
and he's always there for you. The other day, I was working on a sermon, and, and, and um, my little girl was in her, in her nursery room, and she was laying in the crib. Now, she's four months old, so she can't talk or anything, but she began to cry, and I, I heard her cry, and I just got up. I walked over to her. I picked her up, and she stopped crying. That's the same way prayer is. When you cry out to God, when you call out to him, he hears you, he listens, he loves you, he's there for you. Anytime, he's there. And so I want you to know that God always answers every single one of your prayers. I know what you're thinking. No, he doesn't. I tried that, it didn't work, it did. It just didn't answer it the way you wanted. That sometimes he tells you no. Because he's a good father. If a, if a dad just said yes to everything the children ask, that's not a loving father. Can I go play in the traffic? Yes. No, that's not a good dad. That's a dad who hates his kids. A loving father knows when to tell his children no. So sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says later, but God answers every single one of your prayers. I truly believe that. And consider this, that your father is also the judge. That's privilege. Your father is the judge. That's a position of prayer that you can go to him and he'll provide for you, that you can go to him and he'll make right what's wrong. You can go to him and he will give you justice. Your father is the judge. That's amazing. So there's some things we need to consider when it comes to persisting in our prayers. So quickly, I'll give you these, all right? First is, when we pray, you must pray boldly. Pray bold prayers. Positionally, you're declared righteous, okay? That's a legal term. You have right standing before God. So you can go to him, and you can give him your requests boldly. You can go to him and be bold. Now, God is not offended by your bold prayers. Actually, he loves them because it gives him opportunity to display his glory, So ask bold prayers. God's not offended by big prayers. He's offended by our small imaginations. Go to him. I'm praying right now for a building for our church. Aren't you praying with me? The one I have my eye on is $3 million. After renovations and repairs and restoration, I'm not saying we're getting it tomorrow, but one day I'm gonna keep praying for God to give us the, the, the corner of the kingdom of God, deep gospel roots in this city. I'm gonna keep praying boldly. Because God loves bold prayers. The second thing is we're to pray relationally. Okay, he's your father. You can go to him. You don't have to be eloquent. You need to be relationally. Imagine if your kid came to you and said, Dearest earthly father, though we are humble and poor, and you have all ability to grant us gifts, Lord, we beseecheth thee for bluebell. You think, what the heck is wrong with these kids? It's the mama's fault. Just kidding. It's mine. No. Here's what you say. Dad, two words. Bluebell. Dad's like, heck yeah. Now, don't be, don't be angry we don't get Bluebell for breakfast because he's a good father, but he loves you. You can go and you can talk to him. You can be and pray relationally. Next, pray succinctly. When you pray, get to the point. Just get to the point. You don't, have to, you don't have to twist God's arm. You don't have to manipulate him. When you pray, just get to the point. Right? Some prayers are short. Some prayers are long. But when you pray, just get right to the point. Get to the heart of the matter and be honest. Pray succinctly. And the next, pray persistently. Okay, some of you, you give up praying before God even gets started. You pray 
and then you walk away. And, and our minds are just moving 90 miles an hour that we don't even keep a tab of what we're praying for. And if you're not being persistent in your prayers, how do you even know if God's not answering them? You pray, and then you walk away, and then you go do everything on your own effort. You don't even give God a chance. Pray persistently. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep hoping. Keep going to him. Keep working it out. Keep working on it, and let him work through you. Pray persistently. And so ultimately what this is, is it's a teaching. It's a lesson for us to become people of prayer. God wants us to be people of prayer. It's a position of all of our lives being dependent and relying on him. We are to be people of prayer. And so he's telling the disciples, you're you're discouraged. Okay, know this, persist. Persist through your prayer. And then next he says that if we persist through prayer, it will bring us perseverance. Okay, here's what Jesus says. Verse seven, and will not God give justice to his elect? Okay, if this crooked judge can give justice to this woman, how much more can our good judge give justice to his children? If this crooked judge can do what's right for the woman, how much more in your life can God do what's right for you? Will God delay over us? Will God give us justice to his elect? He goes on and says, who cry out to him day and night. Does God listen to your prayers? Yes. Does God love to hear your prayers? Yes. Does he delay? No. Does he ignore you? No. God loves you. God listens to you. And God does not delay. But I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? Okay, your day in court is coming. We will all get our day in court. Life is short, forever is a long time. You will get your day in court. For the Christian, your day in court was on the cross. That as Jesus entered into this life, as he lived the perfect life, died the painful death in our place, that justice was served for the Christian on the cross. For every, for every nail hammered into the hands and the feet of Jesus, the judge dropped the gavel on your life and says, not guilty. Your sins have been forgiven. Your past has been forgiven. And your future is wide open to the sovereign plan of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the Christian, justice has been served on the cross in your place by his grace. For the non-Christian, you think you're getting away with things in life. That you're living your life doing what you want. There's no repercussions And everything's fine. You're good. You're decent. You're moral. There's nothing bad happening to you. I want you to know that God knows all. God sees all. God judges all. And you think that just because nothing's happening to you, everything's okay. But the Bible teaches that we're actually storing up wrath for the day of judgment. I would beg of you. I would plead with you. Get right with the judge today. Don't wait Get right before the judge. Present your case to the judge so that he could forgive you and give you grace and mercy because hear me on this. Life is short. Hell is hot. And forever is a long time. So when we consider this parable, what is Jesus presenting us with? A lesson of our life in difficulties. The judge who has it all and the widow who has nothing. 
But behind all of our lives, there's a great judge. And though we are powerless, he is powerful. And when we place our hope and trust and and life in his hands, he will do justice on our behalf. So how long are we to pray? Always. How long are we to persist? Always. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's a long time. We are to always pray. We are to always persist. And the big idea is that when Jesus comes back, will you still be faithful? When you meet Jesus, either through your death or his return, will you still be faithful? See, the kingdom of God has already come. That Jesus entered in this life fully God, fully man. He gives us through his grace, his mercy, his redemption, his salvation, his restoration. Jesus has come revealing the kingdom of God in our lives. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to encourage us to live a new life with new purposes, new passions, new direction. And he also gives us his church to to live in a new community with a new identity, to live within accountability. Jesus has given us everything we need in our lives to be persistent through prayer and through perseverance. The only thing we must do is to hold fast, to hold firm on God's word and God's will with God's people until the very end. Persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. And so don't give up. Don't give in. Life is short, but there is a life to live. There is, there is people to love. There is a mission to accomplish. There are tithes to be given. There are people to serve. There is a city who needs hope. There are missionaries to sin. There is life to live. There's people to sin. There's love to give. Don't give up. Don't give in. Persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. And so as Jesus is closing his life and his ministry with this call to the disciples to persevere in their life, what I realized as I was reading one commentator is that this is a frequent uh, command, a call of perseverance to all of the churches in the New Testament. That you and me as Christians, we will always be in a position of perseverance. And we will always be in a place to where we have to depend on prayer and the kingdom of God. And so just as Jesus is closing his life with a call to his disciples to persevere, in the scriptures, it's calling all of us as Jesus' disciples to persevere. And so I want to read you 12 New Testament closing verses in which the authors and the Holy Spirit ultimately behind the writings tells us, in your life, you need to persevere. Don't give up. Here's what it says in Matthew 28, 20. It says, to continue to the very end of the age. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Ephesians 6, 18, keep alert with all perseverance. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, as for you, do not grow weary. 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me and bring me safely into his kingdom. James 5.7, be patient, 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of our Lord. 1 Peter 5.12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 2 Peter 3.17, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by error and lawless people, that you will have your own stability because he remains stable. And Jude 24, now to him who is able to do all of this, he will keep you from stumbling. So you kind of get the picture, it's important. It's a big idea that there will be pain, there will be difficulties, there will be uncertainties, but we must persevere. We must overcome the sin and the temptation in our lives by the glory of worship and the glory of our King. You need to persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. The Holy Spirit is working in you. Allow him to work through you. So here's, here's the big idea. How many of you guys have ever run a marathon? Right? I have not because I don't hate myself. When someone says, I'm running a marathon, I think, well, that's great, good for you, buddy. In my mind, I'm thinking, what did you do to think you deserve this kind of punishment? I want you to think of the Christian life like a marathon. That's what the Christian life is. See, most of us, we sprint, we run out of breath, and then we give up. We're not very patient. We want it right now. Instant gratification, materially and spiritually. So we tend to not be very patient, which makes us not very persistent, makes it very challenging for us to pray. So we think life is like a sprint. In reality, life is like a marathon. Okay? Now, how long is a marathon? Typically, 26 miles. Do you know why? Because, because in ancient Greece, there was, there, there was a battle going on. There was a war, and Greece was lo- losing. And it seemed as if all odds were against them. There was no chance of them winning. In the battle, they were actually four to one. So they were going to be destroyed, and the entire nation of Greece would be captured and then taken as, as slaves, or their nation would be destroyed. But somehow, they were able to pull off the win. They won. And the, the name of this battle was in a city called Marathon. And they had to get the word back to Athens, which is the capital, before the enemy did. Because if the enemy made it to Athens, then they would win the war. And so they, they got one young man to run from Marathon all the way to the city of Athens to bring the news about the victory. So as he ran to beat the army there, he ran through all the danger, he ran through all the difficulties and through the darkness, and legend says that when he ran into the the capital, he threw his arms up, he shouted victory, and then he died of exhaustion. That's the Christian life. You run to Jesus You share the good news. You shout victory and then you die. That's the Christian life. You run to Jesus. You share the good news. You shout victory and you get the glorious reward of knowing your Savior, your God, your King, and your Lord. And so you you will live for him in this life and you will be with him in the next. Life is short. Forever is a long time. Persist. Don't quit. Don't give up. Whatever you're walking through, God is with you. And you will receive the reward in heaven. Life is short. Forever is a long time. Persistence plus prayer equals perseverance. I pray that we become a church that perseveres. 
Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.